0: Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. I got in my first fist fight in sixth grade. I know what you're thinking. I was a late bloomer, not my fault. Got in a fight with the kid on the playground. There was a kerfuffle at recess, and I just sounded like my grandfather right there. I don't know what a kerfuffle is, and I can't spell it, but we had one at the playground. And so he told me we were going to meet after school. And it's like, all right, we're going to meet after school. I wore glasses. I took my glasses off because I knew if I got in a fight and broke my glasses, I was going to be a lot of, in a lot of trouble. Uh, should have occurred to me I was going to be in trouble anyway for getting in a fight in school. My vision was so bad as a kid that I couldn't read the alarm clock next to my bed. So when I took off my glasses, balled up my fists, and r- got ready to get in a fight with this kid who was bigger than me, I had no idea where the shots were coming from. I'm trying to bob and weave and swing, and, and I just, everything is a blur. And then, you know, you take a shot, and then you, and you get a shot in, you take another shot. Really confusing and quite painful. Sometimes, that is a description of the Christian walk. The Bible teaches us that when we choose to follow Jesus, we are stepping into a fight. And if we're not intentional and if we're not careful, we can get to the place where we don't really understand who or how we're meant to be fighting. Scripture says that we will experience an attack, a challenge as we press into Jesus. Not a big deal, not something we need to be afraid of, just something that we should be aware of because we've been talking about rebuilding. We've been talking about reengaging on mission with Jesus. And the fact of the matter is that's going to tick somebody off. We have an enemy who doesn't like to see people come to freedom, liberty, doesn't want to see him experience joy, and so he brings attacks. So we're going to look at the story of Nehemiah chapter 4 and identify some of the places that those attacks come. I'm going to, I'm going to put on my glasses so I can see where they're coming from, because when I see where they're coming from, I can do something about it. You don't need to write these down because we'll, we'll come back to each of them, but you're going to find that Nehemiah is attacked in three significant areas, in his character in his confidence, and in his competence. We'll get to those. In 1885, a guy named Charles Spurgeon wrote a message called the trowel and the sword. I asked Tricia to find me a real sword. Tricia is way too smart for that. So she gave me one. I don't think she was worried about you. I think she thought I might hurt myself. So this is what she gave me. Nehemiah is coordinating the work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And in the midst of the, uh, that, that's the work of the trowel, a stonemason. In the midst of the rebuilding, he finds that the work is coming under attack. And so he has to reach for a different tool. He reaches for his sword. And what the story will tell us is that both of these are essential. We're called to rebuild the broken walls. And that from time to time, we're going to have to step up and to fight. But what we'll see with Nehemiah is who we fight and how we fight is critical to our success. Nehemiah 4 opens with these words chapter 4 verse 1 When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall he became angry was greatly incensed he ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria he said what are those feeble Jews doing will they restore their wall will they offer sacrifices can they finish in a day can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are Tobiah who was at his side said what they're building if even a fox climbed up on it, it would break down their wall of stones. Really nice guys. Now, if these names are familiar, like, I think I've heard that Sanballat-Tobiah thing before. We first met them in chapter 2, verse 18. Nehemiah's talking, and he says, I told them about the gracious hand of God upon me and what the king had said to me, and so the people replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But then these dudes, Sanballat and Tobiah and this third guy, Geshem, Heard about it, he says, and they ridiculed us. Sanballat was from a city called Moab. And his job was to be the governor of a place called Samaria. Tobiah was an Ammonite. That was his tribe. And they lived on the the border of of uh, Judah. We don't know a whole lot about Geshem the Arab. We just know that that he didn't like what Nehemiah was doing. You read the story, and these are just kind of like names on a page, right? What's the big deal? But then you look at a map and it becomes much more significant. This is Samaria to the north. This is where Sanballat ruled, but he was a Moabite by tribe. So both of those areas are under his influence. Tobiah is an Ammonite, so he is up there on the right quadrant, and Geshem the Arab was from southern Palestine, which is there below Jerusalem. So when we read those three names, we realize that that Nehemiah and his people are surrounded on three different sides by enemies who are committed to make sure that this rebuilding doesn't take place. Now, these men also represent Israel's, now Judah's, traditional enemies. The Ammonites and the Moabites and the area of Philistia where, where Geshem is, these are places where God led the nation of Israel across the Jordan River, kicked those tribes out, and then gave them this area as their promised land. And over time now, as the people of Israel went into exile, those three tribes began to re-encroach upon the area that God had given his people. When we're inattentive, when we're not paying attention, the enemy is always going to try to limit our borders, to restrict our area, and take back what God has given us. And so that's what these men do. They come against him. So when you and I, as God's people, when we step out on this mission of kind of rebuilding or renewing, restoring, there are always going to be people who have a vested interest in making sure we are not able to rebuild. The Bible says we have an enemy. He says his motivation is to rob, to kill, and destroy. He's not interested in a rebuilding of anything. He wants to tear down everything and everyone that God loves. Now, here's what's weird about these guys. They are all regional governors. And do you know who gave them permission to be regional governors? King of Persia. Do you remember who sent Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? King of Persia. Wasn't a trick question. Same dude. So Nehemiah shows up, commissioned by the king to do this work, and he could reasonably expect that these other representatives of the king are going to jump in and help. But he finds himself resisted by the very people whose support he would have expected. When you and I join Jesus on mission, sometimes, painfully, we're going to be really surprised by the people who start to push back against us, by the people who resist the work of God in our lives or in our community. And so they start to attack. I told you we're going to look at three primary areas, three ways the devil gives us his best shot. Nehemiah 2.19. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem heard about this, that we were rebuilding, they ridiculed us. What are you doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Guys, this is a shots fired moment. In that statement, they are attacking Nehemiah's character. They knew that he had come from the king of Persia with letters not only endorsing the work, but financing the work. And they immediately moved to mischaracterize what he is doing as they attack Nehemiah's character that he has an ulterior motive. You're trying to rebel against the king. And the reason this is such a significant statement is if word gets out among the people around that Nehemiah is rebelling against the king, none of them are going to join him in this work of rebuilding. And do you know why? What's the punishment for rebelling against the king in this culture? (laughs) You're done. And so these guys are trying to speak lies about his, his integrity, about his motives, and about his character. If they can malign his character, nobody is going to rally to his cause. You might know what it feels like to have your character attacked for doing the right thing, for trying to do good. It stinks. Years ago, um, it came to my attention that, that something was going on in the family of a missionary that we were supporting. Um, that we were actually endorsing and sending. And his wife shows up on my doorstep one day and says, my husband's kicked me out. I'm like, well, that's not right. Well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Um, so I want to immediately begin to invest in a work of rebuilding for their marriage and for their family. So I do everything I can do to help them. I, I temporarily find her a place to live. I meet with them individually. I try to meet with them together. We, we pray together. I, I get them to go into counseling. I just want to help rebuild Whatever's been torn down in this moment, but there came a point in our dialogue where it suddenly became abundantly clear to me that this man didn't want to get right, he wanted to be right, and he was not going to support or love or do anything that the Bible would very clearly outline a husband is meant to do for his wife, and there was definitely no, no laying down his life like Christ, you know, loved the church. And so when it became clear that he was not going to act righteously toward her, I put my foot down and basically said, son, that dog don't hunt. This is not how we respond to each other in the kingdom of God. And so because he was unwilling to walk forward into reconciliation, we pulled his support, we pulled our endorsement, and he got nasty. He wrote a 13-page letter in which I figured quite prominently, and he sent it all over the world. I mean, he posted it on Facebook? No, he, all over the world. How do you know? I got my copy from someone in Central Asia. Hey, John, do you know this guy saying this about, I mean, it was, it was rough. I got a, I got a letter from his, <laughs> from his attorney subpoenaing my records. I mean, I've never had a subpoena before. That was exciting. He just, he came after me. Now, it took a matter of years, but at the end of the day, I was proved right. This woman was beautifully, gloriously restored. She is doing so well because God, at the end of the day, always has his way. But I was attacked not for rebelling against the king. I was attacked for trying to do the right thing. If you're joining Jesus on mission, if you're pushing into discipleship, if you're trying to love people on his behalf and and you're being attacked and your character is being called into question, can I just tell you, you are in exceptional company. Not because it happened to me, but because it happened to Jesus. I mean, when you look at the son of God and say he is the son of the devil, like he is aligned with Satan, you're really coming after the man's character. And at the end of the day, hear me say this, when it seemed like they had won, they actually crucified him. Jesus basically said, jokes on you, death can't hold me, and stepped out of the tomb. At the end of the day, Jesus always has the last word. So if someone is unrighteously attacking your, attacking your character, hear me say to you, Jesus has the last word. Jesus is the one who justifies us. Sometimes it takes our enemy a couple minutes to figure that out. And so they continue to attack. Let me show you the next one. Nehemiah 4.1. We read the first half of this. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry. Greatly incensed. The, 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 the Hebrew word has the sense that like he is burning with fire. There is something that just wakes up inside of him that he is so against what God is wanting to do. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? Basically, he starts name calling. Will they restore their wall? Can they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? and they bring those stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are. This is an attack, not against his character, but against his confidence. They are publicly mocking him. This isn't happening in a private room. It says Sanballat, his associates, that's bad enough, and the army of Samaria are hearing him lay the verbal smackdown on Nehemiah. He's trying to undermine Nehemiah's identity, his sense of self. He's essentially saying to him, and you may have heard this voice yourself, you're not smart enough for that. You're not good enough for that. You're not worthy enough for that. You're not loved enough for that. He even goes on to say, and the people who like you, they're a bunch of losers. Not only do you stink, everybody who thinks you're okay, you're okay. They stink too. That's what those feeble Jews means. Now, here's the thing about a discouraging attack when it's leveled against you, like when it's leveled against Nehemiah. Most discouraging attacks have an element of truth to them, but they neglect a larger truth. What's the element of truth here? The people living in Jerusalem probably were pretty feeble. There are defeated people who've been content to live in a ruined city for decades. It's what they know. It's all they hope for. It's what they become comfortable with but there is a greater truth that serves as a backdrop and that's that this is God's project that he is the one who has commissioned the rebuilding and he has promised to see it through sanballat saw what was god saw what would be and he is the one who had chosen nehemiah for the role so he's the one that's going to see it through i'm at a pastor's conference in in washington and Man, I'll tell you, if you ever think it's hard to sit here and listen to somebody for 30 minutes, they put pastors in a room and they make us listen to people for three hours. Be blessed with your 30 minutes. Um, somewhere in the midst of those three hours of kind of singing, teaching, announcing, a guy named Bert Smith is teaching, and he said something that cut through all the noise and just pierced me
1: to the core of my being. He just said this quietly. He said, you are greater in the eyes of the Lord than you are in your own.
0: Hear me say that to you this morning. You are greater in the eyes of the Lord than you are in your own. What does that mean? It means God has more regard for you than you have for yourself. If you're anything like me, one, I'm sorry. Two, when you look in the mirror or when you do a self-assessment, you are not immediately drawn to what's great about you. You're probably drawn to what's missing or what you wish was different. I wish I was a better parent. I wish I was a better teacher. I wish I was a better boss. I wish I was a better disciple. I wish I I was a better something. There is almost always an area in my life where I feel feeble, a place where my confidence is going to be challenged. But here's the thing. When the Father looks at us, he sees something very different. The Bible says that when you and I are born again, we are clothed in robes of righteousness. What does that mean practically? It means when God looks at you as a born again Christian, he does not see our imperfections, but rather the perfection of his own son. He sees us as his handiwork. He sees how he has created us to do good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. We see what's wrong. He sees what's right. We see what was or what is, he sees what will be. It doesn't mean that he is blind to our deficiencies. It means that in his infinite love and his infinite wisdom, he accepts us as we are and views us through the shed blood of Jesus. So the question that Nehemiah has to wrestle with, the the subtext of what Sanballat has just said is, who do you think you are? This is a challenge to build the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah, who do you think you
1: are? To reach those kids, who do you think you are? And so I need to ask you this morning, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Can I take just a second and tell you who God thinks you are? I'm going to take your silences and absolutely, Pastor, bring it. Hear the word of the Lord because
0: scripture teaches us that the word of God is alive and active and it pierces and it penetrates to the core of our being. So if there is a lie that has somehow embedded itself in your soul, as I
1: say to you what God says about you, let's be healed and set free. Who do you think you are?
0: You are a son. You are a daughter of the most high God. You are a person who is so beloved that the God of the universe sent his only son to die on your behalf, not only to cleanse you of your sin, but to bring you into relationship with him because there was no other way for you to get close to him. His love for you was so overwhelming and so compelling that there was no price he was not willing to pay. God looks at you and it says, you are like, I have written a poem. You are my handcrafted piece of art. That's what it means. God looks at you and says, you are fearfully, wonderfully, miraculously made. There has never been another one like you, nor will there ever be. And can I say as an aside, stop comparing yourself to other people. God didn't make you like them, and he didn't make them like you.
1: You are who God made you to be. He calls you a temple in which his Holy Spirit dwells. He
0: says of you that he has a plan for you, and it's a good plan. That he has a future for you, and it's a good future. That you're to be a people of hope because of what God is doing in you and for you. He goes on to say that you are more than a conqueror. I don't know what more than a conqueror, I mean, I'd be happy with conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. Take conqueror up a level. This is who you are in Christ. And when someone attacks you, hear him say, there is a greater thing in you, a greater person in you than there is in the world. Which means there is not a power, not a force on the face of this planet that can contend with successfully the work of God in your life. Somebody needs to say amen or I'm going to keep going. Do you? I, I may need to preach a little bit in a minute. I'm just saying. I got other places I got to go. Hear what the word of God says about you. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation,
1: a people chosen from God's own possession. This is who you are. And so, if someone attacks your character,
0: if someone tries to undermine your confidence, you probably just need to say, Son, I don't know who you've been listening to, but I'm listening to my dad, and he loves me a lot. So, you just put it in park, and I'm going to keep on moving. I'm trying. We'll look at how Nehemiah responds to the challenge in a second. But there's one more area where he finds himself being attacked. That Tobiah guy, verse three. (laughs) What they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. These guys are brutal. Like they start with his character, then his confidence. Now they're attacking his competence. They're basically saying, You stink. You can't do what you've seen. You call that a wall? My two-year-old daughter could not. I mean, Legos are more stable than that. You don't know how to rebuild. You may hear that voice saying, you don't know how to be a good dad. You don't know how to be a good... You don't, know how to, you don't know how to pray. My God, you call that a prayer? That's horrible. Jesus can't even hear that. You don't know how to heal. You don't know how to heal a city or your family. You stink at this. You're incompetent. That's what he's saying. Now, in fairness... Tobiah's assessment was probably accurate to a certain degree. It didn't look in that moment like the wall it was going to become because they had only begun. But you have to start somewhere. I want to show you what happens in God's heart where you begin anywhere. Zechariah 4.10, don't despise the day of small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work, what, finish? No, the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, I hear the invitation and I move forward in it, and that delights the heart of God. He's not waiting for the finished product. He's excited about what we're about to do together. We said a couple weeks uh, last week, man, it feels like weeks ago now. Last week, the greatest ability in the kingdom of God. It's availability. It's just showing up. Because here's what happens when we make ourselves available. Paul says, God is working in you, giving you the desire.. And the power to do what pleases him. What does that mean? It means when we say yes to Jesus, when we begin to work with him, he, he goes to work in two critical areas. He gives us the want to, the ability to want the things that God wants for us. And he gives us the how to, the ability to follow through on the directions that his Holy Spirit brings us. He shows us how and gives us the desire to please him. It's never about our natural abilities, church. There is a supernatural impartation that comes about to do what we can't do in our own strength. In each of these areas of attack, character, competence, confidence, they are all geared to discourage your heart. Here's what discouragement does. Discouragement looks for and believes the worst possible outcome. Eeyore, wah, wah. Chicken little, the sky is falling. Discouragement looks for the worst and locks into that. Faith can acknowledge the challenge, but looks first to Jesus and asks him, what are you going to do about this? I may not be great at construction, but you're the master builder. Show me what you want me to do. When we come under attack, we get to choose. This is the beauty of Jesus. John, you get to choose what you give your attention to, what you don't have or what you're hoping I'll do. All right, Lord, I think I'm going to look to you. Now, if I'm honest, a lot of the time I'm so distracted by the garbage in front of me that I forget to look up. But once I look up, my horizon changes. Here's Nehemiah's prayer. I love this. He doesn't worry. He doesn't give into fear. He says, ah, I think I'm going to pray about it. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. He's a little ticked off. Do not cover their guilt. Don't let their sin be blotted from your sight. Why? They have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This has been a brutally personal attack against Nehemiah, but he doesn't get personal in response. He gets prayerful. And his prayer in a nutshell is, hey, God, you hear what they're saying about you? What are you going to do about it? They don't think you can do what you said we should be doing together. They've provoked you to anger. They're challenging the work you commissioned. So you should probably go ahead and step up and do something about it.
1: Doesn't start calling names back. He just goes, talk to my dad. See what he has to say about it. It was God's problem because it was God's plans being challenged. Because it was God's assignment, not Nehemiah's.
0: God gave it to Nehemiah. When someone comes against you, you're
1: doing God's work, church, it's not you they have to contend with. It's your dad. You got a big dad. Verse six. So we built the wall. <laughs> all right, I
0: built the wall. And all the world wall was joined together up to half its height for the people who had a mind to work. The answer to Nehemiah's prayer was not that Tobiah and Geshem and Sanballat suddenly got convicted and went, oh my gosh, we are so sorry. How can we help? Nope. The prayer was answered in the people doing the work, not in God changing the heart of the enemy. Because the point of the prayer was that the mission God had set out would actually be accomplished. We have to make sure as we pray, we're not predicting the way God is going to answer that prayer, or we could miss it. God actually allowed the challenges to continue. Here's why. Sometimes God uses his people to build the walls. And sometimes God uses the building of the walls to build his people. They had forgotten during the years of exile what it meant to trust and rely on God. They had forgotten what it meant to represent him to the outlying communities. And God responds to Nehemiah's prayer by waking something up inside of them. It says they had a mind to work. The enemy's still there. Guys, if we wait for the pressure to diminish before we jump in with what Jesus is asking us to do, we're gonna miss the best part of the assignment because the best part of the assignment is what God is going to be doing in us. Sometimes he uses the pressure cooker of life to transform us into the image of his son. The answer to the prayer, hear their challenge, hear their lies was not that God silenced the enemy, but he gave Nehemiah and the people the strength to push through. I got to land this plane pretty quick. Verse 8. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to get closed, and they were very angry. This is actually more angry than they were last time. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. I start laughing as I'm reading this. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites. Check. I've heard that. The Ashdodites. Who the heck are these guys and where do they come from? Ashdod is on the Philistine plains uh, to the west of Jerusalem. So in response to Nehemiah's prayer, the people began to work and more enemies actually show up. They are now completely surrounded. You may go, John, Now look up in that corner. There's nobody there. There will be by chapter six. Plains of Ono, that's going to happen. The threats have actually escalated. They've gone from mockery to the threat of violence. They've stopped making fun of them and said, well, that doesn't work. Now let's go try killing them. As you follow Jesus and you start taking some ground, don't be surprised if resistance begins to escalate. Ephesians 6 reminds us that we're not engaged in a battle against people, though we have to remember that, but rather against the spiritual forces behind them that are influencing their behavior. That's why Nehemiah didn't
1: get personal. He got prayerful. And then he got practical. We prayed to the Lord and set a guard. We had the trowel because they never stopped working.
0: And we picked up a sword. We looked at our wall and said, where are the places of greatest vulnerability? Let's station a guard there. Because as they built the wall, there were areas in the wall that remained low and could not keep an enemy out. Somebody called this sanctified common sense. And what he meant was our prayers don't replace our actions. They make our actions more effective. Pray and continue to do. And for some of us, the doing that we need to address today is setting watch over those places in the walls of our heart where we are experiencing vulnerability. Let me tell you what that means. Because if the enemy of our soul can get through the walls around our own heart, not only are we compromised, but the work God has for us is compromised. There are places where we need to be particularly attentive because we know we are particularly vulnerable. So we pray and we set a guard. What do I mean? If you're a recovering alcoholic, you don't pray, God, keep me from temptation and go hang out with the boys at the bar. That's no, there's no common sense there. You find something else to do. If you're a compulsive shopper, you don't say, God, keep me from temptation while you watch The Shopping Network. Makes no sense. If you wrestle with fear, you don't say, God, keep me from fear and go watch Friday the 13th, 14th, 15th, or whatever now. It doesn't make sense. We, we position ourselves in a way where we can guard our hearts and not create space for our enemy to easily attack us. Nehemiah's people, they don't stop praying, and they don't stop working, They just take a minute and make sure they have everything that they need in order to meet the threat that presents itself, to protect the vulnerable places. And maybe this morning, maybe even right now in this moment, as we're talking, the Lord's bringing something to mind for you. You're like, you know what? Yeah, there's a low spot in my wall. And I probably need to give attention to that. Don't be embarrassed about that. We all have them. And we all have to do something about them. Just don't put down your trowel in order to pick up your sword. Continue to do what the Lord has put before you. Last part of Nehemiah. I looked and arose and said to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid. Pastor Bernie just read this. Remember the Lord. He is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for
1: us. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Fight for one another. You hear the sound? Rally together. We're family. We're we're the people of God. We
0: we don't fight one another. We fight for one another. Even as God fights for us. The Bible teaches so clearly. Says. One can be overpowered, but two together can defend themselves. And a cord made of three strands that, is, that are intertwined, they can't easily be separated, can't easily be broken. We, here, we, we, don't, we don't embarrass people who said, I need some help and, I, and I'm setting a guard. We celebrate them. It is such a remarkable point of discipleship when people decide to be obedient that way. We're called to stand alongside one
1: another. Guys, in, in the last couple of years, We become really familiar with isolation. Some of us have become comfortable with it.
0: Up where we were, when the stay-at-home orders came into place, all of the uh, introverts I knew were like, yes! I don't have to talk to anybody. This is awesome. But it kind of crept into our hearts. That's not what we're meant for. We're meant to be together. And if anyone needs something, they're to sound the trumpet, and the rest of us are to come running. Guys, we need to be engaged together. Whether, whether it's in service or in study, in, in community, just in fun, we need to be together. And fellas, if I can talk to you for just a second without getting in too much trouble, we stink at this. That's ladies laughing, not the guys. The guys are like, dirty look. We're not really good at this. It doesn't come very naturally to us. We, we very easily isolate. All I need is my couch and my remote control, and I'm good. ESPN will bring my heart. That is the wrong place to amen, brother. I got to tell you, of all the places to amen, that was not it. Jesus help us. That's awesome. Uh, Guys, it's it's why we're doing things like hanging out on on November 12th. We need some tacos and hang out. Is the heaven going to open? Probably not. The earth going to shake? Probably not. Am I going to laugh a lot? Yeah, I'd bet on it. That and some good tacos. Come come, hang out with us. We need each other. For those of you who are serving tonight for Family Fun Block Party, can, can I just say thank you? I mean, Pastor B already did, but I want to thank you for modeling for us what it means to live on mission with Jesus. You're not just setting up and tearing down or handing candy out. You are becoming the hands and feet of Jesus giving a smile, a word of encouragement, love to people who may not be getting it anywhere else. Thank you.
1: I want to leave you with this last thought from Nehemiah 4. People prayed. They built. They posted a guard. You know what they never had to do? They never had to fight. They grabbed their swords, but they never
0: used them. Nehemiah said that God would fight for them, and Nehemiah was right. Sanballat. Tobiah, Geshem, the men of Ashdod, they all knew something. They knew that Nehemiah and the workers in Jerusalem had legal authority from the king to do the work of rebuilding the city, and the enemy had no authority whatsoever to actually stop it. All they could do was threaten or discourage in the hope that the people would choose to stop working. They never attacked. They just talked about attacking, hoping that would be enough. He says, when our enemies heard we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated, we returned to the wall, each his own work. Why? Because the enemy went away. Because the enemy realized they couldn't do anything. They didn't want an actual battle because they knew they were going to lose. They were all talk, want, 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 want is all they had. But they wanted God's people to give them victory either through their inattention or surrender because they
1: knew they couldn't take the victory. So the people returned to work, and that was the victory. Sometimes when we're under attack, we
0: think that enduring the storm, I just hunker down and let it blow over. We feel like surviving
1: the storm is the victory, but it's not, because the point of the storm is to stop the work. And so we continue to work. Brings us back to the question, who do you think you are? I think we covered that
0: pretty well, but I, I do want to show you this one last thing. You have, as Nehemiah did, been given authority by the king to minister on his behalf. You have been given authority that the enemy cannot overcome. Here's what Jesus said to us in Luke 10, 19. I've given you authority, there's that word, to trample on snakes and scorpions, overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. As a child of God, we have been given authority to overcome all of the power of our enemy and God's promise of protection, that he will fight for us as he fought for Nehemiah, as long as we don't give up and continue with the work before us. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church.
1: Thank you so much for listening.